I'd like to introduce our next speaker, our keynote speaker, uh, Dr. Donald Burke. Now, one of the really um, perplexing parts of the uh, war on drugs is that in addition to all of the harms that the other speakers have been talking about uh, in, our, in our past couple of panels, uh, because our drug, con uh, uh, drug prohibition drives drug use underground, it is incredibly hard. For, uh, for, for academics, uh, researchers, public health advocates to study and learn about what is going on so that we can help people who are uh, caught in uh, uh, problems associated with uh, mental health, drug use, addiction, and uh, problems caused by the drug war itself. So we're very pleased to have with us uh, Dr. Donald Burke, who's the Dean of the Graduate School of Public Health and the Jonas Salk Chair in Population Health at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Burke uh, got his uh, BA from Western Reserve University in 1967 and uh, his MD from Harvard Med School in 1971. Uh, I have a very lengthy bio of his right here. Uh, I hate it when people read my entire bio, uh, so I'm not gonna read all of his. One of the reasons that I hate it when people read my entire bio is bios like Dr. Burke's because it is so much longer and more impressive. But I will hit a couple of highlights. Uh, he's conducted collaborative vaccine and epidemiology studies in India, China, South Africa, and other countries. He spent 23 years as an active duty officer at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, retiring at the rank of colonel. He served uh, nine years as a professor at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He joined the University of Pittsburgh, where he is now in 2006, where he founded the Pitt Public Health Dynamics Laboratory. Uh, an academic team that develops computational models and simulations of epidemic uh, infectious diseases and other dynamic public health problems and uses these simulations to evaluate prevention and control strategies. He now leads a Pitt public school health, uh, public health school-wide initiative aimed at control of the opio opioid epidemic. He's co-authored more than 300 publications on uh, public health and medicine. You'll find one of them uh, outside, of, uh, available as a handout. It is uh, an article that he and some co-authors published in the uh, journal Science on uh, the, tr the alarmingly persistent trend in, uh, in drug overdose deaths in the United States. Uh, that's what he'll be uh, talking to us about today. And he's an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine and the recipient of the 2018 John Snow Award from the American Public Health Association. So uh, with that, I'll turn things over to Dr. Burke. Thank you. So thank you. Um, today I'm going to be talking about the dynamics of the drug overdose epidemic in the United States. Uh, I'll, ha I'll have two uh, major components of my talk. First, the, uh, an epidemiology of drug overdose deaths, and then a closer look at the age structure and how that's been changing over time. Um, a couple of years ago, I was invited to write an editorial uh, for Science Magazine on a special issue on pain. Um, and I thought that at that time there was very little going on in terms of modeling or forecasting of the epidemic. We're sort of flying blind. We don't know what to expect in the future. If this were other epidemics, we'd be thinking about five years ahead of time 
and uh, sort of epidemiologically skating to where the puck is going to be rather than where it was five years ago. And so we thought we could help bring that kind of skill set uh, to this epidemic uh, by having a coordinated national opioid epidemic modeling program that made use of data and made use of modern epidemiological techniques. I, I, my interest was first drawn to this problem when we were reviewing deaths in Pennsylvania, and I was startled to see that uh, in our Commonwealth that uh, overdoses were the leading cause of years of life lost. I was slow to come to that realization. Uh, uh, and then when we looked at the national uh, data, this was a, a graph, that, the first graph that we drew a couple of years ago. Uh, and when I looked at that, I said, that sure looks like an exponential growth curve, if I've ever seen an exponential growth curve. This starts in 1979. Uh, there are different ways of classifying diseases and deaths. The ICDs, uh, the ICD-9 started in 1979, so that's when this curve started. Um, and then you can take this curve, uh, and you can put an a exponential growth curve against it, uh, uh, and... Uh, uh, and so the first thing you look at that without even doing any calculations is uh, the direction of the curve and where it's going to go over the next five years. If you take that exact same curve and just take the logarithm of each of those points and plot it on a line so it's now a log linear plot rather than a, uh, a plot of the actual numbers, it is a perfect straight line. Uh, by perfect straight line, the correlation R squared is 0.99. So for 40 years, <clears throat> our country, uh, when you're counting deaths from accidental poisoning, drug overdoses from all causes, this isn't just opioids, but it's all causes of drug overdose deaths, the, the growth curve has been perfectly exponential for 40 years. And when you see that kind of history, when you project into the future five or 10 years, smart money says, we're going to stay on that curve unless something dramatic happens. It also says that what we've been doing in the past hasn't done much to change what is a straight line process. So we wrote these data up in more detail uh, in science uh, a few months ago at the end of uh, last year. Um, and <clears throat> so I'll show you some of those data in more detail, but the basic message here was we have an exponential growth process that has been inexorable for four decades. Well, that's the same data. Show the, the left half of that shows the, uh, the ICD-9 part of it, the uh, right half, the ICD-10. We have good data on the relative contribution of different drugs uh, from 1999 forward, not as good from uh, 1979 forward. You can see that there are a few wiggles in the curve. Uh, but they are wiggles, and that one of the things that happens is that if the curve goes up a little fast, it slows down for a while and then speeds up again. Uh, we've seen a variant of this graph before of the different types of drugs that have been contributing to fatal overdoses from drug overdoses in the United States uh, going back to 1999 with prescription drugs uh, and uh, with cocaine and methadone and more recently the fentanyls uh, and the heroines. Uh, and one thing to, look, to see in this is that even though the overall curve is perfectly exponential, 
that the individual drugs have been going up and down at different paces and that none of the individual drugs is a perfectly exponential curve, but somehow they all come together to form that single perfect exponential curve. So let's look at this in a little more detail uh, by looking at what, what ages are affected uh, by uh, in each time point during the course of the last uh, uh, 20 years. Uh, on the x-axis are the years, and on the y-axis are the age at which persons die from fatal overdoses in the United States. And instead of line graphs, this time it'll be a heat map. And the heat map will be the points on the curve, or on the, uh, on the display will be the, the, uh, from blue low levels to red high levels. Um, and if you then look at those data, this is the same data of the drug overdose epidemic now, but looked at as a function of the age of the persons who have died over, uh, since 1999. Uh, if you start on the left side of the curve there, and let's see if I can get this to actually show up. And if I can't, that's all right. Uh, the, uh, uh, that uh, at persons above uh, 50 or 60 years old, there is not that much uh, fatal overdoses. Uh, and, uh, but as you get into the, uh, on the left-hand side of the curve there, uh, in 1999, most of the deaths that were reported were in the age 50 or 60 years old. Uh, as you move onward, the, the, you, the, the, the average age declined over time. Um, and even as you move further to the right, there's now sort of a second peak, which is the younger age peak, which has started to appear uh, about in the 2010 or thereabout. Uh, uh, and uh, so I'll, I'll be looking at this same data set now in more detail. Uh, but you, I think you all are grounded now, and this data display allows you to look at sort of the rough-cut demographics of the, uh, the causes of death. So this is now the same data, uh, but across the top we show the different demographic groups of males and females and white and black and other, uh, and uh, the uh, urban and rural and down the y-axis, down the left side, are the different drugs that are uh, uh, reported in each of the deaths in each of those age groups. And so at the top, uh, uh, it's uh, overall, and then it goes down uh, uh, from uh, the uh, heroin to uh, prescription drugs to, and then uh, and as you go down, the different ones are listed there. That's, as I say, that's the one we just looked at, which was the overall, and, uh, but these are breaking it into the different components. Differences uh, between males and females, you can see that there are some pretty striking differences, that the recent epidemic has been involving a higher proportion of males. That if you look at black and white, uh, there is a much, uh, that, that younger sub-peak is much more among whites than it is among blacks. Uh, and as you look across the individual drugs, the patterns over time have been changing uh, de uh, across all eight, uh, across all demographic subgroups. With uh, the uh, prescription drugs uh, starting earlier, the heroin later, and that's consistent with the earlier graphs that we saw. Point behind this is that when you take that single overall exponential curve and break it down further and further, you have this. Uh, 
uh, array of, of variable epidemics, of different age structure, different drugs, and yet they all somehow come together into a single perfect exponential growth process. And I won't go to that. Uh, that uh, you can also do the same thing by looking at changes in the geographic distribution over time uh, by the different uh, drugs uh, uh, with prescription drugs and heroin and fentanyl and uh, cocaine and methamphetamine. And, and there are major geographic differences as well. The CDC routinely puts out data statewide, but if you look at it by county or smaller jurisdiction, you see it's even more of a a crazy patchwork or quilt uh, of this. Uh, uh, and uh, so that there are uh, regional variations as well that are um, important and changing over time, I should say. In the science paper, we have the changes over time. I'm not showing all of the, the maps uh, that if, you, if you're interested, you can look at that. So we have this paradox uh, that the over, we have an overall smooth and predictable epidemic curve but it's composed of all these multiple heterogeneous sub-epidemic processes that are not smooth and not predictable. And so it raises the immediate question, how can these all fit together? What, are there some forces, some hidden hand uh, akin to the Adam Smith hidden hand of economies that hold all of these things together in a smooth process? And this is a question for you because I don't have an answer to that. Uh, but what I do have is, um, a strikingly uh, um, predictable overall process with a strikingly not predictable underlying processes. So uh, let's take a step back and say, well, what do we think we know about the evolution of the epidemic? And I, and I think I'm, this is sort of the conventional wisdom uh, of the epidemic that, uh, that we started off with advocacy for increased pain treatment, and that led uh, to the introduction of uh, new high-potency drugs that were uh, prescribed wildly, uh, that uh, the cheap heroin was uh, filled a gap when the uh, prescribing was started to decline, or just without that, uh, and that fentanyl then replaced heroin. And I think that you know this is a certainly the chronology is true, and probably there's a fair causality in that as well. But this doesn't answer the question of how how does this fit in a single growth process. Uh, and, it, and in fact, it, it almost uh, it suggests that maybe there's something, as I say, the underlying factors that are holding all this together, that there are root causes that are the contributing factors. Uh, and so it's made us start to think more about not necessarily what the individual drugs are that are causing the overdose epidemic, but you know, are there, what are the deep changes uh, the, the, that are, you know, that are the deep drivers of the epidemic? Well, one of these uh, is the, the price of heroin, uh, that over time, uh, the, the street prices of drugs uh, continue to decline, over, certainly over the same time period of 40 years. You know, the, the price uh, of, a, of a bag or a price of getting high uh, has been declining over time. So, Maybe one of the factors that's pushing the exponential growth is just a growth, you know, this is just a price uh, curve uh, response. Uh, uh, the, another, um, and then when the introduction of fentanyl is that uh, fentanyl overall is, uh, is cheaper and all, all of the, uh, the, the manufactured drugs are, 
going to be, if not already, cheaper than the whole process of growing you know, produce and shipping it and purifying it. And so that we're in, entering into a new era where the price of drugs is dropping. One of my colleagues has suggested uh, that maybe we should be thinking about this where the, the actual production costs are essentially dropping to zero in the overall process as we think about the five or 10 years from now of the epidemic. Another dimension that may be driving uh, this epidemic uh, is the individual sense of well-being uh, that uh, there's been a lot uh, written about the diseases of despair that include uh, drug overdoses and suicides and alcohol. Uh, um, and so we tried to do some simple things. And I, again, I, I'm not claiming to have answers here, but are just some directions of ways to think about the epidemic. So uh, the, uh, the Gallup uh, 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 publishes each year its uh, well-being uh, report of the cities and, uh, and MSAs. Um, and all we did was just to take those data and line it up against the mortality data by jurisdiction. Uh, they took the overdose mortality ranks, that is 1 to 50 by states, and the Gallup Healthway Survey well-being score ranks about how people self-report their self-perceived sense of well-being. Um, and when you do that, you get graphs like this, that on the x-axis is the rank of overdose uh, rank, with 50 being the worst, meaning the highest. Uh, and on the y-axis, it's the sense of purpose. It is, and there are a series of questions that Gallup asks as part of the survey that end up coming into a, a subscore of well-being that they call their sense of purpose. And it's a pretty good correlation uh, that uh, places that have a low sense of purpose, have a high sense of overdose, or have a high rate of overdose. And you can go through and do some comparative statistics. Most of the measures of well-being, including the, the community sense of well-being, financial, physical sense of purpose as well-being, social, uh, <clears throat> they all correlate with each other uh, in terms of jurisdictions. Uh, but of the, all of those factors that, uh, that, uh, that associated with the uh, overdose death rates, the best, at least in the first cuts that we've done, have been the sense of purpose. Uh, and uh, so this opens a whole area, I think, of important research that says if something is driving and holding the overdose epidemic together, and, and if it correlates pretty strongly with a sense of purpose, even more so, than financial concerns, then maybe we need to understand those drivers better if we're going to make interventions in the epidemic. So, and so again, so we on the above we have what we know are the immediate causes, which are the drugs, and these are you know these are no doubt involved and important parts of the causality. The drugs do kill the people, but there may be deeper causes that are contributing as well, which are these push and pull, supply demand lower prices, sense of purpose. And I just put two here. There's probably a whole, and people in the audience here can think about what are the other contributors that we should be looking at and understanding if we're going to intervene in the long term. My concern is, and our, my team's concern is, that we got 40 years of an exponential growth process, that if you're a betting uh, person, that it's going to continue for the next 10 years unless we do something different. And if we continue to focus drug by drug, then maybe we're not going to get at those factors that are going to change that straight line 
process. So that's the uh, summary here, and I, I think I just said that. Uh, so, uh, the, uh, so the second part, let's look at in a little more detail the, the age structure of the epidemic, because that's been changing over time as well. So uh, that uh, there are diff three different ways of thinking about time, passage of time. One of them is when people were born, their birth cohort, their generation. The second is the calendar year in which events happen. And the third is how old the person was. And these are all related. If you know the birth year and the calendar year, you can figure a person's age. And uh, so you know, that's pretty self-evident. But it gets a little tricky then if you're looking as over time, if things are changing, attributing change to any one of these factors, because all three of the, the time factors move together. And so I'll, we'll look at this in a little more detail. Uh, that, uh, and as I say, all three can you know, go with uh, uh, the birth year uh, is a way, another way of talking about cohorts or generations. And are there factors that, as a group goes through, uh, that uh, things change that affect their, uh, their life experience? The age, uh, so uh, teenagers are one, uh, one age way of measuring age, and another one is the, the year itself or the, uh, the, the period of event, or you know, Beatlemania came and went uh, is a sort of one way of measuring that. You know, the, uh, so, uh, so here's the, uh, the same uh, uh, data that I showed a, a bit earlier. Uh, uh, that uh, by age, a number of the demographic uh, uh, groups and drug groups. Uh, and one of the things you can do is take that, and when we looked at that, if you uh, across, and I hope I can get this this time now. Let's see if I can. So you see, uh, you see my arrow there now. If you look at this curve here, is that it, it actually looks, there's a, it's almost a straight line there on the top of the curve. Uh, and so let's just bend the, these figures over a little bit and flatten it out. So instead of having age here on this side, uh, we now have the, the birth year on this axis here. And this is the calendar year on this side. And you have essentially, as you come down by birth years, all of a sudden in 1945, 46, the curve starts to go up. You know, there is a straight line right across there and right across there. So we look at this in more detail. Here's the, uh, the calendar year. Here are the birth cohorts. This is 1950. This is 1940. So people who were born before 1950 have a very low rate of uh, overdose deaths. It starts here uh, in calendar years, but this is the cohort that's affected. And then, the, and then it starts to swing downwards uh, as time goes by. Uh, and here's that second peak that I talked about uh, in earlier. Uh, uh, so, so now we have, uh, and this is the silent generation uh, and the uh, baby boomers, and so that there's a pretty strong generational transition there uh, that I think demands explanation. Figure out what the what happened that uh, that um, uh, that there's uh, that, that within a span of maybe five or six or seven years, the the uh, the risk of fatal overdose it, it, based on your birth cohort changed substantially. Another way of looking at this, the, now that we, since we tilted the graph sideways a little bit, these are the age structures here now. And one of the things that's interesting is that as time went by, the, me, the average age, and you know, here's the average age dropping, uh, and now there's this asymptote down here, which is around age 
18 or thereabout, uh, which is the sort of a start. So, so you can almost start to now look at the overdose epidemic and have it as having dimensions and, and ways if you're trying to predict forward, where are we likely to see? So it's not hard to take these data and say, well, what's gonna happen in the next two or three years, just projecting that forward. And here's again, the same kind of thing. You can do this uh, by, you know, uh, by uh, demography and by uh, drug. I won't walk you through each one other than to say the patterns are different. Uh, and uh, that uh, and if your one of your purposes is to understand historically the impacts in different demographic subsets, I think you have to look at the data this way. And if you're going to look in the future in different demographic and geographic subsets, you need to know the history and the past of that subset to try to make sense of it. Uh, so overall, there may be these factors of sense of purpose or or pricing. But I think that we can, we can get smarter about uh, the, the, what's driving the patterns one by one. Um, here's another way of looking at this shift words, which is a downward shift. This is a, an animation. On the x-axis here um, is the year. Uh, on the y-axis is the uh, death rate. Uh, and each individual line then will be a new birth cohort, starting with people who were born, what does that say? I don't have my glasses on. What's the birth cohort at the top there? 1940, okay. Uh, the, uh, and uh, so let's, uh, so with each passing birth cohort, this is the pattern of, that, of death that they have, and each one fits its own exponential curve as time goes by. So each birth cohort is having a faster and faster and faster course of risk of death from drug overdoses for the last 40 years. And it's almost perfectly mathematical in, the, in that progression. And if we then uh, take the doubling times, by the way, the other thing, I, the other metric of this that you can do uh, is the doubling time. So as, those, as you see, these exponential curves are getting faster and faster. So you can, one way to measure these is just say, how, what is the doubling time going on? And the doubling time keeps getting faster and faster, depending on the birth cohorts, to, frankly, to the, to the most recent cohorts. It is getting faster for the youngest group, faster than the historical groups. And here's the way of, of drawing this. This is the doubling time graph. And Remember that you know before 1940, there, it really wasn't. There was very little death, and then the doubling time rapidly increased uh, to the point that it was around 10, and then it's been gradually increasing uh, during the course of this epidemic. So there are these big coherent changes that have been occurring as we watch, and you have to ask, what is this curve going to look like five or 10 years from now? And I keep harping on the same thing: is that we should be looking to what's going to happen five or 10 years and think it that way. Uh, another way of drawing these same uh, data are uh, uh, by, uh, by age, by birth cohort, and by total mortality over time. The folks out here who ha you know, have multiple years that they, have, they, 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 got, they were allowed to grow older just because more time has passed. Uh, but you can see that the younger you are, the faster your cumulative mortality as well as the faster your annual mortality has increased, with the boomers having the biggest jump uh, in uh, mortality. And most of that was associated with the prescription drug overdose uh, period. 
So this one's an, another, yet another one, and I think this is a, a good, an interesting way of looking at the data. It's a little hard to do, but I think it's, so instead of doing it in two dimensions, doing it in three dimensions. So in this case, uh, we've got uh, the, the ages and the years on these axes here, uh, and I don't remember which projection this is. I have to get my glasses on. Yeah, so these are the years um, here. Uh, going up uh, to 2010 from 1980. And these are the birth years uh, here for going from 1900 to 2010. So these are the, uh, the more recent years and these are the more recent birth cohorts. And here's that, here's, that plateau, here's that area where the generation, this is the baby boomer rise that, I, that we looked at in two dimensions. And then as we turn it around a little bit, then you start to get this extra area here, which is the, the younger people. There's the, this sort of the youthward swing of the epidemic. Um, and, then, and then on top of that, you have this, this ridge right on top of the mortality, which is the recent fentanyl ridge. And so I find it useful to think of this way as sort of the three. And Dan, it comes close to what you're talking about. It's almost the three phases kind of thing. And it's the same. Same idea, except here you can visualize it as being different components. And if I were betting right now, I would say this part, and we're doing some formal mathematical analysis on this, this, this fentanyl ridge is just that. It's a ridge on top of what is an otherwise smooth process, and that ridge will go up and come down. And so we need to say, all right, if we're doing well, does, does it really count the fact that there was a ridge on top of what was going on and then we just go back to what the baseline growth process, what is that good or not? And my guess is, my guess is that's what's going to happen and if I had to bet, we'll settle back down onto a growth curve again, which, which was what it was before the fentanyl aberration appeared. I don't know that, but that's, a, I think, a good way of at least thinking about it. So that gives you the look at the epidemic. And I think visualizing the epidemic this way is helpful to think about patterns and trends and, uh, and talking about the different components. This one's a little complicated, but bear with me. This is now uh, taking the epidemic over time uh, with birth year on this cohort uh, and this one uh, with the calendar year here and marching forward so that here are the younger people are on this side of the curve the older people are on this side of the curve, and as we march forward in time, uh, and in this time we've shown the individual drugs over time, and in 1999 they change, and so we've got two different uh, coloration schemes, and they're going to switch in the middle. But as, as it goes on over time, white is where there is no, uh, you know, there's no drug attributed or no specified drug. And the, the, the important parts of this are as you get toward the lighter part of the curves. So, and here's 1999 where it shifts to the other. So the point here, let's stop it for a second. The drugs here are the synthetic opioids, heroin, prescription, methadone, uh, and uh, didn't want to do that. So I'll jump it forward here. So most of the peak is here, which are the people that are in that, that peak, which are the, old, 
the older people, which is 40 to 50 years old. And there's a little peak growing here. You, see, you can see the different trend. And I'll just let it run, and then you can see it. But to watch the right-hand side of that, all of it just shoot up with uh, in the last couple of years. Okay, so and those are the, and that's heroin and fentanyl on that epidemic. So there's there's that component, which is this youthward youthward shift, which is mostly the injectable type drugs. So, but and we're trying to provide some ways of looking at the epidemic to help you people understand what's going on in um, uh, in more than just one line at a time. So let me summarize this part of the talk that. Uh, so that the uh, epidemic shows considerable age structure. There's predictability to it uh, that the epidemic began with the silent generation, baby boomer generation interface. The boomers dominated. Uh, there was this growing youthward shift. And in the last few years, we've had this ridge or surge of uh, fentanyl, which are the components. Um, and so the overall conclusions uh, are that uh, We've been following this predictable curve for a long period of time, that there are sub-epidemics that are within that, that if you look at the age structure, there's a lot of age structure, even though there isn't necessarily drug and geographic and demographic substructure, um, and that we, we should be able to do some forecasting of in, in individual groups, and, and we should be setting targets. We should be able to say, this is what the curve's going to look like. This is where we, if we intervene, this is what we expect. We should be evaluating our programs by saying, did we re de decrease things and how do we show that? I have to say it drives me nuts when I see newspapers say, you know, that uh, this jurisdiction went down by 5% uh, and therefore that's victory. Uh, you know, uh, and I, and the reason is that the lines jump around a fair amount and I, uh, and, and particularly the, the fentanyl, you know, usually the jurisdictions that went down 5% are the ones that went up 50% in the preceding year. Uh, uh, and so you have to be really careful in interpreting what's success. And so as a policy makers, we have to look very hard at what we're going to use as evidence for policy interventions. And, uh, here's the team uh, that uh, was on the science paper. Hare Jalal is a... Uh, uh, in, uh, is an assistant professor, uh, uh, and Janine and Mark uh, uh, and Lauren and Kuhn and myself. Uh, it's a wonderful team of uh, people who are thinking about this. So thank you for your attention. It's great. Thank you. Since we are running over a little bit, we will do questions, but uh, we'll eat into the break time about five minutes for questions. Uh, I ask that you please ask crisp questions. Please wait to be called on and wait for the microphone. Uh, the interns are going to be extra speedy getting you the microphones. Uh, we'll start with the nice woman over there on the, on, on the left wall. Uh, please uh, speak into the microphone and announce your name and affiliation. My name is Paula Gordon. I teach uh, courses on marijuana and also uh, the drug crisis for Auburn University Outreach online courses. Um, I, I'm, uh, I think I have some answers to your questions about the factors. I think if you look, I, I noticed you didn't include marijuana there. Um, I think if you looked at uh, the legalization 
of, of marijuana that you would see that it tracks very closely. And one of the things, if you just look at what happened in Colorado, what is happening in Colorado, the, with the um, uh, influx of um, cartels and um, black market drugs, they're undercutting the legal marijuana uh, so much so, and they're selling heroin and uh, cocaine, methamphetamine. And what is your question? Uh, I wondered, uh, I, my question has to do with, with, with um, uh, marijuana and its hypersensitization of the brain, uh, which has been shown in fetuses uh, of miscarried um, individuals uh, and um, um, aborted individuals who have been exposed in utero and in animals as well. Uh, that this uh, creates a tendency to opioids, uh, to ch choosing of opioids in an experimental situation. W would you like uh, and to... I, I wonder if, I think that th this is a, fa a major factor that needs to be taken into consideration because... Can it, I ask it, Professor it, Burke to it, comment on that? It crosses generations. Thank, Thank you. you. The, uh, so you're right, I didn't uh, say anything about uh, marijuana specifically because it isn't, it's very uncommon for that to be listed as a cause of death uh, on, on, a, on a drug overdose. Uh, more importantly, uh, from a policy point of view, I, you know, I have looked at those, those states that have had a dropping rate in drug overdoses versus those that have had, and I have to say I'm not yet persuaded that there is evidence for policy that marijuana adoption is associated with a distinct fall in the overdose rate. I want to believe it, but I'm not ready to say that. The state that's had the biggest fall in the last couple of years has been Wyoming. Uh, and uh, so you can look at lots of jurisdictions. So I, I think that's the, exactly the kind of data that we need is looking state by state, policy by policy, changes over time, and asking whether or not the policy itself can be temporarily associated with the change in the fatality rate. And I don't think we have that strong evidence base yet for a lot of the decisions that need to be made. Okay, next, next question, please. Bruce Houston, contractor. Your screenshot of the map showing drugs in certain areas and not in areas. Uh, why was heroin there and cocaine there? Can, is there a relatively simple reason for areas? Uh, no. Uh, the uh, I I don't know what those are. Cocaine is uh, if you if you look uh, in more detail is a much more urban uh, distribution uh, than the others. Uh, uh, but why we have this methamphetamine uh, on the west uh, and uh, fentanyl on the east and uh, you know that you know I I've spent my life doing molecular epidemiology of of viruses and other things that spread. Uh, and more often than not, it's, a, it's due to founder effects, what got in there in the first place and then subsequently went on, but that's not a very satisfactory explanation. I, uh, but having the data laid out like that forces you to ask the questions and helps us, I think, in the future understand those. Hi, my name is Andrea Lopez. I'm a professor at University of Maryland. I'm an anthropologist and ethnographer who's been working with people who use drugs for the last two decades and was really interested in your notion of sense of purpose sort of as a variable and thinking through this idea that potentially it might serve as a proxy for legacies of exclusion or patterns of violence that have happened institutionally. So as an ethnographer who has worked with people who use drugs sort of at the front lines of the opioid epidemic, really interested and curious to know about where you see the role of kind of a mixed methods approach in answering this 
this broader picture question and where we might bring in um, qualitative perspectives as a sort of means to address interventions to address, address those legacies of exclusion. Yeah, I think that a mixed methods approach is gonna be essential to this. I think that we've gotta do a lot more just talking about these potential deep drivers and understand them and then see if we can align some quantitative information against that. But yes, that's the right way to go about it. Okay, I think we'll have to make that the last question. Uh, we'll now take a 10 minute break. Refreshments are available in the Winter Garden here on the first floor. There are restrooms uh, on this level. And if you go down the circular staircase to your left, and we'll be gathering here uh, again in 10 minutes to hear from, uh, from Daniel Chicarone, Bo Kilmer, Scott McDonald, and Jeff Singer. Thank you. And thank you, Professor Burke. Thank you.